You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hi, I'm Jean Chatsky, and welcome to Her Money. Thanks so much for spending a little time with me this week, focusing on your financial life, because when you own your money, you own your life. And today, we've got somebody great to help us focus on doing just that. You all have probably seen Karen Feinerman on CNBC. She's the chairwoman, as they call her, on Fast Money. She's also been the chairwoman of Metropolitan Capital. She's a graduate of the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. And today, we're going to tee up a conversation that talks about investing in ourselves. How aggressively can women actually go after making money? How we can find success, but on our own terms, whether or not risk aversion when it comes to your investments is particularly a problem for women, as it's reputed to be, and why multitasking can be a huge waste of time. Karen, welcome to the show. Happy to be with you. I'm thrilled to have you in the studio. We can we can do the hurrah hurrah mm-hmm. song later. <laughs> you know, one of the things I think I knew about you before I read the book, but it comes through loud and clear in the book, is you knew from a very young age that you wanted to make money. I think there are not a lot of women who who say that, at least out loud. So where did that come from? You know, it always surprises me. There aren't a lot of women that say that. Most definitely came from my mother. And I'm one of five kids, four girls and a boy. But the message she had was really directed at the girls. And that was, you must make your own money. You must be financially independent. And she had this philosophy, which I refer to as Calvinism, was her religion. And the way she preached it was, I buy my girls Calvin Klein clothes, so that's (laughs) all they know. And then when they graduate college, they got to figure out how to pay for them themselves. And that's it. That was the entire philosophy. And so we got this message that we need to pay for ourselves. And I'm very thankful that she gave us that message. Did it translate for you directly to, I have to make millions of dollars on Wall Street? Yes. Oddly enough, uh, it really did. And I, at a very young age, I read an article about being a risk arbitrageur, and I decided that's what I want to do. I want to go to Wall Street. And I told my parents, listen, most direct route to Wall Street is to go to Wharton. So I'm applying to Wharton only. And if I don't get in, I'm not going to college which is clearly a stupid plan, but (laughs) thankfully it did work out. And so that's what I did. Did it scare your parents enough that they said to you, no, what's plan B? If I'd said I want to be an actress, that would have scared them. This would have been plan B. So they were happy with this as plan A and only A with no other plan. You know, the way the words risk arbitrageur rolled off your tongue, when I was in high school, I I didn't even know what that was. I, I how did you how did you know that this was a career that you could go for? 
I didn't know that I couldn't. It didn't occur to me that I couldn't do that. But how did you that. know what it was? I only knew what it was because I read this article about Ivan Boeski, which is how I thought you pronounced his name. It was <laughs> Ivan Boeski, and he was a risk arbitrageur, and he made so much money, and I thought that seems really fun and fascinating, and that's great. Now, this was before he was arrested for insider trading, and, you know, his uh, reputation was ruined and all of that, but I didn't know any of that was to come, and I just thought, this seems like a great career. That's what I want to do. And when you told your Calvinist mom about it and you you got into Wharton and you made your way, was she supportive? Was this something that she just wrapped her arms around? She did. She was very supportive. And I felt that she was very proud of me. That's great. We should all feel that way. Right. It's a nice thing to have the approval of your parents. Absolutely. Especially because these days in particular, it's almost hard to hope that your kids will be more successful than you are. I mean, the economy is in such a precarious place, and yes, it's doing better, but there's a lot of talk that the American dream is vanishing. I think that's true. I I don't have expectations that my kids will be more successful than my husband and I, but I do think they probably will have a more well-rounded view of what success is. To you, what is success? When I started my career, success and money were very intertwined and uh, they were the same thing. And as I've grown older, it is to do work that I enjoy. You know, I'm a hedge fund manager. I'm not saving the world. So, uh, you know, it's not the most spiritually fulfilling, but it's intellectually interesting and, you know, we managed to grow a business and uh, have a staff and support them and, uh, you know, build jobs. And it's interesting work. And I love learning about companies. And I like making money. And it's it's exciting, even though you don't necessarily have something you want to spend it on. I like making money, too. And I, and I think that's a hard thing for women to say. I remember being at a cocktail party. We had just moved into our neighborhood in Westchester. I had had a baby maybe three months ago, and I was coming to the end of my first maternity leave. And one of my neighbors, this very nice guy who I really didn't know at all, said to me, well, why are you going back to work so quickly? Why are you, you know, take your time, enjoy this part of your life. And I remember saying, I'm too ambitious. And he looked like I hit him in the face. Like he just, he was just like, oh my God, I I don't think I've ever heard a woman say that ever. And did you feel like that was a negative? I think it was. I mean, in his mind, I think it was a negative. In my mind, it didn't occur to me that it would be received that way at all, or I probably wouldn't have said it, quite frankly. Right. But for me, I knew that my happiness was very, I mean, I I love being a mom, but my happiness is very much tied up in what I do. I liked, I was writing and reporting at the time for Smart Money. I loved that. And I I wanted to go back to work. And and I think those are the, the, I want to make money. I want to succeed at work. Even in these lean in Sheryl Sandberg years, sometimes those are hard things to say. They are hard to say. And it's always interesting to me that A man doesn't need to say, I want to make money. It's just sort of assumed that that's going to be one of his goals. And yet for a woman to say it, it seems somewhat unseemly or there's something that 
not particularly feminine, maybe. Yeah, I mean, in your in your book, you say that a the biggest obstacle to a woman's success is herself. Right. So I, how how does that tie in? So it's really it's it has to do a lot with women conveying confidence, and it was sort of I had this epiphany about it when I ran into this friend of mine who was another hedge fund manager, really good guy. We're good friends, and I asked him. I said, you know. You have no women on your staff. Why is that? Because I had all women. And he said, here's the thing. I have a limited amount of capital. And so when one of my analysts comes in to pitch an idea for us to put in the portfolio, when a man comes in, he pounds the table about how much money we're going to make. And when a woman comes in, she tells me all the things that can go wrong. And so he said, I have this limited amount of capital. I'm a sucker for the upside every time. So what do I need the women for? And right when he said it, I realized he was right, that women in their risk aversion want to lay out all the things that can go wrong. And I think what they're doing is sort of laying off some of the risk that if it doesn't go right, well, I told the portfolio manager all the things that could go wrong, and he bought it anyway. So, I, you know, so you're sort of laying off the risk of being wrong. But to not take the risk, to not put yourself out there, that I think is how women get in their own way. Well, yeah, and I think mm-hmm. that's equally as true about investing as it is about our careers. I mean, my right. feeling about investing and and one of the reasons I, I divide my job into two parts. There, when I talk about money, there are the things that have answers, and there are the things that don't have answers. Right? Mm-hmm. What's the best credit card? I can answer that question, and I can answer it definitively. Right. So there's yeah, so there's a there's a answer to best that. credit card for you. What stock should I buy? What mutual fund should I buy? What sort of asset allocation should I have? There's no absolute right answer. And I think that's why women have trouble with investing. Right. They don't want to have the downside. They don't want to be wrong. But I think a mistake that women make is they underestimate the risk of doing nothing. There's risk in doing nothing. I know they don't want to make a bad move or the wrong move. Or we don't want to make a bad right. move or a wrong we're, move. Right. It, we are the weak. Yes, we are the weak. That's right. <laughs> and men, interestingly enough, I think um, underestimate the risk of doing something rashly. They feel like they got to act. Yeah. They need to trade. They need to do something. I need to, you know, be aggressive. And so I think that that holds women back. You know, the the idea of well, what if I'm wrong is paralyzing and you're better off being somewhat wrong. You know, a lot of times if I don't know, if I have a stock and it's moved and I'm not quite sure what to do, I split the baby. We sell half or we buy half at X price because you don't know. You don't know until after, way after, what was the right thing to do. Well, and being half right it <laughs> is often makes a lot of money and being half wrong often prevents you from losing a lot right. of money. So, so there to... may be a right answer, not a right mm-hmm. answer, but a... A but... better answer than doing nothing. Yeah, exactly. Right. And I think that um, people forget that. Um, we're going to come back in just a second, and I want to continue talking about risk and how women 
should be investing, how we set ourselves up to have enough money to last the rest of our lives. But before I do that, I just want to tell you that Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. And I should, by the way, digress for just a second to say that when I told our Fidelity sponsors that you were coming in today, they were more excited than they've been about uh-huh. anybody else. They were like, oh, we love her. We love her. They love your book. Oh, anyway, you. <laughs> Fidelity is focused on helping women like us take charge of our financial lives. It, it's important to learn about money, not just for yourselves, but for the other women in your life, your moms, your sisters, your daughters, your friends. Visit fidelity.com slash it's time where you'll find the Thrive Workshop, which gives you three simple ways to put your money into action. There's also information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and step-by-step guidance about putting together a financial plan. So again, visit fidelity.com slash it's time. We're back with Karen Feinerman of CNBC's Fast Money. And Karen has been nice enough to bring us, I mean, bring you five copies of her book, Feinerman's Rules. So reach out to me on social media. You can do it on Twitter, on Facebook, at jeanchatsky.com. And tell me what you liked best about my conversation with Karen. Ask a question if you want. Let me know what you think of the podcast in general. But tell me what you think about our conversation And uh, we'll get the first five people who do that a book, which they'll love. By the way, it's a great book. So thanks, Karen, for doing that. And let me just ask, what do you think of the markets these days? Very volatile, right? That's that's clear. Um, But you never have great – I never have great confidence in what the right thing to do is until well after. And unfortunately, we, not just women, people – intuitively, very often have the wrong, our our intuitive reaction is the wrong one. So one feels better in a crowd in, you know, well, everyone's buying, so I should buy. So everyone's doing it. It must be right. And conversely, oh, my God, nobody wants to touch stocks. I should not buy a stock now. And those are the absolute wrong moves to make. You have to really, really try to step back and, and distance yourself from your emotions. They are not your friend. It's it's Warren Buffett, right? It's be fearful when others are greedy and right. greedy when others are fearful. Yes, exactly. And also there's another saying that I love, which is uh, buy when there's blood on the streets, even if it's your own. So <laughs> I, that's good advice from a Rothschild. Is that from I the think Godfather? Ah, oh, that could be. It could. But I thought it was a Rothschild, but I like the Godfather thing better. Okay, I might have just made that up. <laughs> That's good, though. But okay, so we are investing, and we have to invest if we want our money to keep up with taxes, keep up with inflation, even when inflation is low, and if right. we want to give ourselves a shot at having enough money to last through retirement. And yet, many people—not just women, but many, many people—don't have enough confidence in their own investing ability. So what do you say to them about how do you do it? How much risk do you have to take? Mm -hmm. I think how you do it, if you really don't want to be a stock picker, and that's completely fine and that's advisable probably for most people, is to put your money in mutual funds. And there's so many great mutual funds that will do it for you. And you don't need to have really anything so esoteric. You could get something that's very basic that just, for example, tracks the S&P 500. And I'm sure you've talked to your 
viewers and listeners about dollar cost averaging. Sure. And how to get away from that emotion of, you know, buying when it's high and selling when it's low to dollar cost average your way in for a diversified portfolio, which would be stocks and bonds. And you can even have some in, I think one should have some in emerging markets as well. You don't need to do it yourself. You can allocate it to somebody else to pick the funds for you. And when you're putting money in month after month after month through a 401k or another work-based retirement plan, you are essentially dollar cost averaging. Right. Exactly. So when you say you could have somebody else do it for you, is that a person or is that just putting all your money in a target date fund? What I meant was, I should have clarified, putting it in a mutual fund where the fund manager is the one who's doing it for you. But the targeted approach, I think, is also relevant. I think to get some advice on what should my mix be and are women too conservative on the mix. Um, Do you think the pendulum has swung there or are we too conservative? I think we are too conservative and, and it's because it's volatile right now. I think it's a big question. There was an article in the New York Times written by the head of a major investment bank who basically said you should have 100% of your assets in stocks, that retirement and lifespans are getting so much longer that 100% in stocks is the right thing to do. And I looked at that and I said, well, you know, I'm not doing that. And and my husband, who's a little older than me, he's not doing that. Did you right. read it? What I did. Do you think? I did read it. Certainly as a headline, you stand up and take notice. Wow, 100% invest. I think it may be carved out if you're very close to buying a house, um, you know, w- within the very short term, you know, put some aside for down payment. But over time, that's been the right thing to do. And uh, some people just can't live with it. So you have to sort of also fold into your overall plan. What can you live with? What can you go to sleep at night with? And that's likely for most people going to be something less than 100%. For me, personally, I have all of my liquid net worth invested. You do? In stocks? Almost all. Uh, in stocks or some private equity. Almost all of it. And I watch that basket pretty closely. But you sleep at night. I do, yeah, sometimes with the ambient, but yeah, I do sleep at night. <laughs> do you think that you have, are you a risk taker in other parts of your life? Do you think that there's something about your makeup that makes you able to handle this? I guess so. I don't know. When I step back and think about it, the idea, you know, in the 1980s of, uh, you know, a young girl in Southern California saying, I want to be a risk arbitrageur, that is unusual. Yes. So I think there's a little <laughs> pr- risk, you know, prone um, there. I think I am. And I'm comfortable with that, though, uh, because I I guess that I think more about the risk of doing nothing. Okay. One of the things that you say in the book, Feinerman's Rules, is that Taking control of your money is the new black. Um, I love that. I love that. Have women turned the corner as far as taking control of our money? I think that younger women have somewhat. You know, there's a great push, I think, for younger women when they think about forming a house or getting married, that kind of thing. They really want to partner in childcare, for instance. 
And I think that partner in childcare may want them to be a partner in earning money. And I think they have the expectation more often, certainly than my generation, of I've got to be responsible for some of the money. So I do think it's happening. I have to say it's much more slowly. I know. This is happening way more slowly than I had thought. But I do think that it's happening. I feel the exact same way. It's one of those things I feel like we've been watching for the corner, just, you know, watching the needle. And it it should be moving faster. Right. But... But um, it isn't. The, but it isn't. Thing, gradually at first, and then all of a sudden. I hope we're on the peak of all of us, you know, just the inflection point of all of a sudden. But I would have said that 10 years ago. Exactly. Well, that's how it was with texting, right? Nobody texted. And yes. now you can't stop texting. Right. So hopefully we'll get there with, with financial empowerment, too. Okay, let's talk about life. Yes. Four kids. Four kids. Two sets of twins. Yeah, I try, and, try to be efficient. Yeah, <laughs> you would have to be right. efficient. I have half that many kids, and I try to be efficient. <laughs> but you've got a long, happy marriage. You sit on the Michael J. Fox Foundation. You're involved, and you seem to have rid yourself of, or maybe you never had it, working mother guilt, which is something that I still have trouble with. So what's the secret? I think, well, you say, you know, you were excited to go back to work uh, after three months. It never occurred to me to not go back to work. And it was funny. It wasn't until my kids were, I don't know, five or six, I said to my husband, do you wish I had stayed home with the kids? And he said, actually, yes, I do. But I realized you would have been unhappy, and that's the worst scenario. So th- this was fine. He was, You know, he wasn't telling me what to do. He was just saying if he had his choice. Yeah. And for me, I I never felt bad about it. One thing, though, that I did really have trouble with for a very brief amount of time was working from home. This is going to be unpopular, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think working from home is the worst of both worlds. In that really? Your kids are home. I feel like kids can get used to you're leaving in the morning and coming back. I think they have a much harder time getting used to you're at home, but you're not paying attention to them. I I think actually that's true. And I think on the work side, work feels like, well, you're not there, so what are you really putting in the time? And so I think you're not getting as much credit there. And how many women do you know who do that work from home thing and feel like they've got to work extra hard to show work that they are really there? And so I feel like it's the worst of both. So I try to really just be where I am. And uh, one thing I do that sounds great, but it's a time saver just to admit the downside of it. I have dinner two nights a week with a child alone. So I don't very often have dinner with my husband and all the kids. Mm -hmm. But each kid feels like I spend time with them. And so that's sort of a way that's helped me. I really love the one-on-one time, and it's actually a time saver. Yeah, this is going to sound bad, I know. No, it, it actually sounds fine. I had a therapist many, many years ago who, when I was struggling with this, said, you travel for work. Start taking one child at a time. Start just, they're doing fine in school. Start pulling them out and taking them with you. And it's, you know, a couple of days here and there, but it'll be good for them. It'll be good for you. Just 
just right. do it. And I and I have done it through the years, and it's it it was it was really helpful. And they must have these memories of Chicago or wherever you were, just loving being in the hotel with you and really feeling like they were connected. connected. Yeah. 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 You it's also, good, you make time for your girlfriends. You're a great girlfriend. I, I love girls. You know, I love, I love my husband, but there's a, um, you know, something that girlfriends bring to you. Your husband can't be, one's husband can't be everything to you. They're just not, you know, Built a species. That way. We're so, you know, <laughs> not meant to be together in some ways. And so the girlfriends really give me that. And uh, I wouldn't give that up. But one other thing I just wanted to add about trying to save time yes. and not feel guilty that I think is really important and took me a little, really long time to come to is. Not multitasking, I think, is a huge waste of time. You think you should multitask no, or you think you should not? I think you, should, you not? should not. I think that every time you switch tasks, you backtrack a little. To, oh, where was I? Yep. And so the more you switch, the more you backtrack, the more time you've wasted. So how do you do this in, in your real life? In my real life. So when I'm doing my nighttime rituals with the kids, I never answer the phone. And when I'm working on something in my office, I don't answer emails, uh, things like that. And I swear to God, this is true. I thought that sexting was having sex and texting at the same time. I, I really did. I know it sounds absurd and stupid, but I really did think that. Oh, what an interesting plan to save time. So, no, I think you got to stick to one thing at a time. I really believe it. I think multitasking, it it tricks you into feeling like you're being especially productive. Well, and there, I think there's been a lot of research about the fact that if you divert yourself, if you're in, for me as, as a writer, if you're in the middle of a story and you're typing away and you're in there and then you go check your email, it, it takes you a while yeah, to get you back, back into the, flow, the story. That zone. Or, yeah. Flow. Yes, which I flow. Okay. Love. So as a writer, you write. Yeah. And so to have the discipline, it's hard. I, I say it. I don't always practice it, but it is my goal to do that, to try to really not multitask. So now I have a little pad right next to my desk, and when something pops into my head that normally would distract me and I'd go off and see, oh, I got to go do this or that, I just jot it down, and it, then I, it's aside so that I can finish the task I'm on. All right, lightning round. Yes. Um, in your book, you have a bunch of traps that women fall into, and some yeah. of them are totally related to money. I just want your quick answer for how to okay. get out of this trap. Trap number one, it's unromantic, impolite, and inappropriate to talk about money. You got to do it anyway. Trap number two, trust me, I'll take care of you. Don't. Don't trust him. He may want to take care of you. Great, if it works out that way. You got to take care of yourself. So your own money. I, your own money. Absolutely. For any, money is power, yes. You have to have your own power. All right. Trap number four. We'll skip around a little bit. Mm -hmm. All women splurge. It must be rooted in a biological urge to gather. Yes, we do. And I feel like for me, having my own money allows me to do that and lie about, <laughs> which is helpful for the marriage. Mine anyway. I don't know for everyone's, but mine, lying is a crucial part of a long-term marriage. Well, and even if you don't want to lie about it, if it's your own money, you don't have to tell. Right. Right? You can just... Omit the information. Yes. Trap number seven, you are too old or too overwhelmed to learn about finance. So then when would be the time? I mean, you are where you are, wherever that is. It's the time. So if it's you're, always the right time. If you're feeling too overwhelmed or too old, how do you, and you haven't started, how do you start? 
I think actually your books and what you teach women is very digestible. And that's what's really great about it. You can start its bite-sized pieces. You're not, you know, balancing a portfolio for, you know, with intricate mathematical models. They don't need to know that. And also women don't need, they assume men are born with some intuitive knowledge of markets and finance. They're not. They just don't know they have to be, they have to try. Trap number 10, you don't have enough to make any of this relevant. Start small. No, very few people start with a fortune. Start small. Start where you are. Yes. All right. Last question. Our Proust questionnaire, and we ask everybody uh, okay. this question. I want you to rank order these for me. Power, fame, love, or money? Rank order in terms of importance. Love, money, power, fame. Excellent. Excellent. Karen Feinerman, thank you so much Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having this. me, Jean. Great to see you. Great to see you, too. And now we're moving on to take your questions. We always want to hear from you. You can reach us on Twitter, on Facebook, and at jeanchatsky.com. Kelly Hultgren, our associate producer, is with me in the studio. Hi, Kelly. Hello. So what do we have? Today, our first question is from Heather. She reached out to us on Facebook. She asks, or writes, I have a savings account for my kids, but I really want to invest for them. I want to open up a small account of about 5000 for each kid. We are New Yorkers and plan to stay in New York. Do you recommend a 529 plan or just a regular brokerage account for each? Um, I think a 529 plan is a great way to go. I did it for my own kids. And, and when you're in New York, and I happen to be in New York too, the New York State College Savings Plan allows you to take a tax deduction on your state tax return for contributions that you make to the plan of up to $5,000 a year, which is a wonderful, wonderful benefit since the taxes in New York are high, you know, to put it bluntly. Sure. What many people get confused about is the ability to invest from within accounts. So when you have an account, whether it's a 529 account or an IRA or a 401k, you can invest the money that you put in there. So it's not like you have to have a separate brokerage account to invest for your children. You can invest and get the tax deduction at the very, very same time. And the nice thing about 529 college savings plans pretty much across the board is that they have different portfolios targeted to children based on their various ages. So the goal, just as you want to take less risk with your money as you close in on retirement so that you don't lose it in case the market takes a little bit of a turn right before you retire, you want to take the same approach with a, a kid going to college. Right before they go to college, you don't want to be investing as aggressively as you would had they been three or four or even seven years old. So you use those age-based portfolios to help you navigate taking less risk as they get older. But I think I think the New York 529 and many 529s are terrific. If you're not in New York, there's a website called savingforcollege.com that ranks 529 plans very much the same way that Morningstar gives stars to mutual funds, and you can use it to figure out if, if a plan is good or not so good. Should Heather put the 529 accounts in her children's names or her own? It, it doesn't matter anymore. If you have the money in your name, it's always looked upon more favorably from a financial aid perspective, but that's also true of kids' assets these days. What you don't want is to have the account in the name of a grandparent because 
from a financial aid perspective, and it does get a little complicated, that can be detrimental down the road. Got it. Thank you. Sure. Our next question comes from Paula on jeanchatsky.com. She writes, Hi, Jean. I saw you on the Today Show, and you were talking about online wills, and I missed the website that you mentioned. P.S. My son also went to Penn. Go Quakers. Boy, we got a lot of Quakers here today. Hi, Paula. Um, I'm a Quaker. Karen Feinerman's a Quaker. Hurrah, hurrah. And the Quakers in the audience will know what that means. Um, as far as an online will, there are a number of reputable sites. Willmaker from nolopress.com or nolo.com. You've also got legal Zoom and services like that. Here's where I sort of shake out on online wills versus wills from an estate planning attorney. If you've got the money to go through the process with an attorney, and and generally it'll cost about $1,000 to get a basic estate plan from an attorney. That's a a will. It's a living will, which tells um, a hospital or, or a doctor whether or not you want life support. It's durable powers of attorney for both healthcare and finance, which let other people make health or financial decisions and take actions on your behalf if you're incapacitated and you can't do it for yourself. If you have the ability to go through the process with an estate planning attorney financially, I think it's a good idea because they'll ask you questions and have conversations with you that you might not have considered on your own. But if it's a simple situation and you're you're just looking to put a will into place to cover your bases and the other documents as well, I think software is a fine way to go. The most important thing is that you just get it done. Next question, Brooklyn Crooner tweeted at us, Jean, do you suggest paying off the mortgage with savings when retiring? Also a really good question and not one where there's a one-size-fits-all answer. I like the idea of going into retirement without a mortgage because your income is going to taper off and not having that payment knowing that you have to make it every single month, removes a layer of pressure. That said, you've got to look at it within the context of the rest of your financial life. And if paying off your mortgage is not going to leave you with a big enough pool of investable assets for reserves or to get through the rest of your life, you're just better off continuing to pay that on a monthly basis, particularly if your interest rate is low, as many people's are these days, and and taking it as it comes. One important question to ask yourself, though, as you shift into that next phase of life, is whether you can truly still afford your home. And if the answer is no, you're better off making the change sooner rather than later because you'll just set yourself up for a longer, more successful financial retirement. Thanks, Jean. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks for those great questions. Remember, we want to talk about whatever is on your mind. So reach out to us on Twitter, on Facebook, and at jeanchatsky.com. And now it's time for our weekly Thrive segment. We're talking about mobile payments. 
If you've purchased anything, and I mean anything at all, in the past year, then you've probably noticed some changes in how people are transacting. They're paying with their phones, their tablets, even their watches. About one fifth of us now use mobile payments every single week, and that number is headed up. So you need to know how to do this while keeping your financial information safe. I've got a few tips from the Consumer Federation of America. First, you got to know what data is being used. When you use an app to pay, that app can collect information both at the point of sale and personal information. It knows not just where you're buying and what you're buying and who you're doing business with and how much you're spending. It has your call records, contacts, calendars. So read the privacy policy before you use any. Payment app to make sure that you're comfortable with it, and think about opting out of information that's being collected or used or shared. Second, treat your phone just like you would your checkbook or your wallet. You wouldn't leave your checkbook or your wallet out in the open for people to see, so don't leave your phone. And even better. If your phone offers layers of security, password protection, fingerprint protection, auto lock features, use them and don't ever, ever transact on public Wi-Fi. And remember, cash may still be king. This is especially true when it comes to budgeting. You will, research has shown, spend more with credit than with debit, and more with debit than with cash. Why? Because cash feels more real. So the next time you use your phone to pay for something, make sure you're comfortable with the app's privacy policy. Know that you're treating your phone like the wallet that it truly is, and that the money that you're using is real money. Most importantly, it's your money. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. A great thanks to Karen Feinerman for coming in to sit with me in the studio and for her great conversation and suggestions. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at iTunes. It is Her Money, and Her Money is one word with Gene Chatsky. We'd also love it if you'd leave us a review. We really want to hear from you. So let us know what you think and who you'd like us to talk to next. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. And while you're doing it, take a minute to just send us your questions, your comments. We really want to know what's on your mind. Coming next week, the amazing Joanna Coles, editor in chief of Cosmopolitan Magazine, also brand new board member at Snapchat. She'll be here in the studio with me, and we'll be talking about you guessed it. Sex, money, and power. I hope you'll join us. We'll be right back.